ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Mind Refinery podcast, provided to you by us, the Mind Refinery, creators of content, aggregators of popular culture, and a place where creatives thrive. I'm your host, Kyle Bodanis. This week on the show is my conversation with journalist and video game guru, Patrick Hickey Jr., author of the book series, The Minds Behind the Games. The series features interviews with some of the most storied developers in video game history. We talk about the series, Animal Crossing, the early days of EA games, and much, much more. Also, if you haven't seen the trailer for part one of the next episode of our culinary series, Plated, you can watch it on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash mindrefinery. We spent five months following legendary Toronto chef Suzanne Barr and her partner Johnny Karras as they built their new restaurant, True True Diner. We hope all you lovely people are still keeping safe and staying sane. And without further ado, here's the show. All right, coming to us from Brooklyn, New York, is Patrick Hickey Jr. He's a journalist whose work has been published in little-known publications like The New York Times, The New York Daily News, and Complex. He's the assistant director of journalism at Kingsborough Community College, a game voice actor, and the author of the book series, The Minds Behind the Games. Patrick, thanks for being here. What's up, man? How you doing? Happy to uh, happy to be here. Oh, thanks, man. Um yeah, things are going okay, you know, we're doing the social distancing thing over here. Uh, yeah. How's everything going over there? I know that New York has kind of been like the epicenter, you know, of the situation in the U.S. What, what's it like over there? Yeah, New York is pretty bad. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I felt like I was playing Fallout 3, like VR. Um, the streets were like, it was like a U2 song, like the streets had no name, literally. And um, just going to the store like once a week for essentials and stuff like that. And everyone's mix uh, has their masks on and their gloves on. It's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Everyone is mandated now to um, have a mask on. So luckily uh, my wife is uh, eight and a half months pregnant and I have a three-year-old daughter and we're okay. And we're staying away from some family that we know have been, been infected. But I mean, largely it's just been an exercise in patience because obviously like staying away from people and like I'm a college professor. So doing work digitally is fine, but doing it all of my work digitally is a transition. So it's just a big lesson in patience and adaptation. And uh, have you been homeschooling your daughter? Uh, She's only three. So so she uh, hasn't done it yet. Yeah. Her homeschooling right now consists of like hour long gameplay sessions of like Mario 64 and Rick and Morty. So yeah, that's that's pretty much like how she's learning about the world right now. Excellent. It seems like we're doing the exact same thing. Uh, <laughs> how uh, so? How have you been passing the time? Uh, I've been writing. I mean, the thing is, like, I've always been like the people that know me always like joke around. Like, my nickname is Mega Hustle because I'm just constantly like doing stuff, and um, I've had more time to write than ever before. So I wasn't expecting to have my Genesis book finished for quite some time, but like I was doing like a word count, um, uh, you know, look up the other day and I'm at like 78,000 words already. So I'm my, my first four books are all completed. The first two have been released already. The minds behind sports games and the minds behind shooter games are coming out later this year. But, um, the Genesis book has just come along mega, mega fast. And, uh, it's just giving me more time to edit, to, to clean up, to, to fine tune, and things like that. So I'm doing that. Um, I'm doing voiceover on a couple of games right now. Uh, some writing on a couple of games as well. Some some I can talk about later. Some I can't talk about yet. But it's just like um, super, super busy, but like in the best way possible. And it's just it's it's weird because it's like I've always been like my friends have joked around and been like, oh, you're like a workaholic. And I'm like, no, I just 
I get shit done. Like stuff needs to get done. I have dreams. I have hopes and things that I want to do. So I just get it done while you guys are sleeping. Like I'm up getting stuff done. And, um, like today I was up at like eight o'clock and by like 11 o'clock I had graded all of my papers, interacted with my students for a couple of hours, written an article for old school gamer magazine, made sure that my site was updated for the day. Um, I, and then I was playing Animal Crossing for a little while. So it's like by two o'clock, I was napping with my daughter and I had gotten a ton of stuff done, but still felt like I didn't do anything because like what else is there to do? So this whole like social distancing and lockdown, like for somebody that like me, that's gotten a lot of stuff done has been a great opportunity to like be even more productive. But it's also made me kind of take a step back sometimes and been like, you know, you got more done today than you would on any other day. So now it's time to like shut down. Now it's time to just spend time with your family. Now it's time to like, you know, so it, it, the balancing act was hard before, but it's even harder now because it's like when you're with somebody like 24 hours the entire day, like your relationship changes with them. Like my relationship with my wife has changed, with my daughter has changed, with my animals have changed. Like we've gotten a thousand times closer, which is great. But then at the same time too, you're just like, wow. Like it's just, it's like I said, it's a big, it's a big adaptation. So as far as like what I'm doing, I'm just trying to get as much stuff done, trying to get more done than I got before, but then also like take a step back, press that reset button and just try and be as like coherent and comfortable and relaxed as possible throughout this entire thing. Cause I mean, I'm going on social media and I'm looking at some people's pages and they are flipping the fuck out. And it's just like, yeah, that's not going to be me. Like, I, I just want to stay chill, stay productive, come back when this is all finished and just go back, go right back to kicking ass again. Yeah. I'm definitely in the camp that doesn't understand people who don't know what to do with time. Uh, yeah. Like I'm, I can't say I'm enjoying the time just because, you know, it's come from such negativity and obviously yeah, there's people sick absolutely. and all that, but if you have the time, I think you got to use it. And I think that, mm -hmm. um, you know, it really gives you perspective on life and, you know, you start to realize what you're doing with the rest of your time. You know what I mean? Absolutely. You start to realize like, I really could have done this on a normal day if I had just kind of buckled down, not been distracted by this, not been distracted yes. by that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You nailed it. That's exactly how I feel. Like I have no distractions now, so I've been able to get, so much stuff done like when i do voiceover for a game if like the client sends me voiceover i usually get it done the same day like 99.9 percent .9 of the time and that's one of the reasons why i've been able to like get a lot of work over the last two years because they know that i don't fuck around that i get it done as quickly as possible but i mean the other day i got something sent to me and i sent it back like two hours later and they're like bro holy crap and i'm just like what else am i going to do you know <laughs> yeah so i don't got appointments yeah you know so but then at the same time you say like what what would have been the big deal if you would have just waited until the end of the day or tomorrow you know so it's that whole juggling act absolutely so you mentioned that you're uh working on the next uh installment of minds behind the games mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit like it's when i've taken a look at it the project is kind of mind-boggling in terms of like what you've started to accomplish in terms mm -hmm. of establishing of you know kind of like a encyclopedia of how these games were created. Can you tell us like how you like what was the genesis behind this? How did you put it together? Well, I mean, I was I'm 36 now, so I was 33 and um I had a full-time job, I still do, at uh, Kingsborough Community College. I'm the assistant director of the journalism program there. And um, my wife was five months pregnant at the time. 
And I remember having a conversation with the director of the journalism program about like what was next because I mean, I was just looking at stuff and I'm like, I'm this 33 year old guy that has a six figure salary that has tenure on the way. And, um, that's like the dream, like, oh my God. But my whole thing is, it's like, what am I supposed to do for like the next 40 years of my life? Like I have tenure now, like I'm getting ready to have tenure. I have like all the stuff that I've ever wanted, but like, there's so many other things that I want to do. And you know, I was a journalist for over 10 years at that point, uh, for like 12 years at that point, 15 now. But it was just like writing for newspapers and magazines, great. But I mean, the longer you work in journalism, the more of you, the more you see your work disappear. Websites close, newspapers close, magazines close. And it, it kind of gets erased from the internet too, unless somebody has like a way back machine or like they look through like, you know, the internet you know, archives and stuff. So I'm like, I wanted to just write something or do something that people would be like, yeah, he did that. That would kind of like, I don't want to say immortalize me, but something that would like kind of give me a stamp. That would last. Like, that would last, you know? Yeah. So my, my goal at first was uh, to help create a multimedia journalism program for Kingsborough Community College. And uh, I went to the director of the program and I told him, like, this is what I, this is what I want to do. And he was just like, no, that's okay. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he was just like, no, that's okay. And so basically in his own way, he was basically saying that he was going to run cruise control on his career for the next 25 years because he's a bit older than me, you know, and that he had no interest in like doing anything like remotely beneficial to the students. So I was just like, all right, so then I, I guess I'm just going to write a book. So then he was like, okay, so go write a book. Those were like his exact words to me. So I went in my man cave where I am right now doing this podcast and I'm surrounded by about... 30 consoles and about 3,000 games. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, what am I going to write about? And then I just started pulling games out of the shelves. And I'm like, I know who created these games, but there's a lot of people that don't. And it's kind of crazy because video games is the highest grossing form of entertainment in the entire world. But we know so little about the people that made them. So I'm just like, uh, I believe the six games were like Toe Jam and Earl. Um, King's Bounty, Wonder Boy and Monsterland, NHLPA 93. There was a whole bunch of like Genesis and Super Nintendo games. Uh, E.T., uh, Yars Revenge. So I'm like, I'm going to reach out to these people. And if half of them get back to me and I could write something up for like three out of these six games, then um, I'll have the beginning of, of a book that I could pitch to a publisher and let's see what happens. Like, let's roll the dice. Let's see what happens. So that was on Halloween of 2016. By Thanksgiving... All, uh, all six people that I reached out to got back to me. I wrote all six chapters in a month. And I'll never forget, my wife was sleeping. It was after Thanksgiving. So, like, you know, the trip to fan and stuff like that. She's laying on the couch. She's, like, you know, six months pregnant now at this point. And I'm just like, what else do I have to lose? So I, I pitched three publishers. And three days later, I got a bite from McFarlane. And they said that they were interested. They were super excited. They're like, yeah, we, we've never seen anything quite like this before where somebody doesn't want to like, you don't want to pick one game. You want to try and do as many games as possible. Da, 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 da. And uh, yeah. So then we signed the contract. I'll never forget to, I was so happy and I went, I went to work and I told, you know, the director of the program, I was like, Oh, look, I got a contract. And he was just like flabbergasted. He goes, Oh, well, you know, this doesn't mean that they're going to publish your book. Right. And I'm, I'm like, no, like that's exactly like what this letter means, you know? And he was just like, yeah, well, now you have to finish it. And, you know, finishing a book is harder than starting it. And da 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 And I was just like, okay. So then uh, by, by April, 
like five and a half months later, I had the book finished. So I, I wrote the first book, over 100,000 words, 36 games featured, over 60 interviews. I, I wrote it in six months, worked my ass off on it. And um, that was kind of like how it all started. I just I just wanted to leave my mark. Um, love video games, been a big video game player, fan my entire life. But I'm also a journalist. That's why I try and tell people all the time. It's not all fun and games. I'm a serious journalist. I've been published in a whole bunch of places. I love to interview people. I love to sit down and really speak to people. So this book was just an exercise of combining those two passions of interviewing and uh, video game history. So you're a serious journalist, but did you get fanboy about any of the people in specific? Were there, was there anybody who stood out as, you know, as someone who was super interesting uh, when you were, uh, when you're interviewing them? I remember interviewing Michael Brook, who's the assistant producer on the first like four NHL games, like NHL hockey, NHL PA 93, NHL 94, NHL 95. He also was assistant producer on the first like three Madden games on Earl Weaver baseball. This guy was like one of the people that founded EA Sports. So I remember uh, I met him at his hotel in the city. He was in he was in New York City for uh, for a couple of weeks. And we just hung out like on this terrace and on a couch on this terrace. And we just spoke for like three hours. He just gave me so many great things. He ended up writing the forward to the sports book, which is the next book that's coming out in the series. But it was just like the first time that I spoke to him, he just left a huge impression. And like being able to speak to him about NHLPA 93, which was like the first hockey game that I really like fell in love with. And then obviously NHL 94. But um that was like a moment. That was like the closest I've gotten to being fanboy. And that's the thing that I, I try and tell my students this all the time. It's like, if you go fanboy, they can tell and they stop talking to you. So what I like to do is I like to play stupid. I act like I don't know as much, but in this like more endearing way. So this way they explain things to me more and I get better details and they eventually, you know, go, oh, you you knew about that, didn't you? I'm like, yes, but I can't, I can't write it in this in the book the same way that you would. This book is going to be fueled by your story, not by me. I'm just I'm just creating context for the rest of the uh, for the rest of the book. I'm creating like the road for your story to travel on. So, Michael Brook was definitely like one of those guys that um that definitely like put a like listening to him tell some of the stories about the early days of EA. I just had this big smile on my face the entire time. It's interesting because how big EA has blown up now. You yeah. Know, it's, oh, yeah. What was the size of the company back then? I mean, are like this that's probably the infancy. I mean, when he was working for the company, they had like 30 people. You know? It was tiny. And they were just starting. He got there. Um, he was working there for a little while. And then he left. And he, he went to go get his degree. Uh, he was working abroad, like in, in Amsterdam. And then he came back. And he was like Trip Hawkins, like... Um, like protege. He was like right next to Trip Hawkins the entire time. And, um, he got put on, uh, Earl Weaver baseball as assistant producer. And then after Earl Weaver, then it's like, um, then the NHL series and then, uh, Madden. And I mean, he was right alongside like Don Traeger who did Lakers versus Celtics and like the, the, the beginning of the building of the kingdom of EA sports, like Michael Brook and Don Traeger were the guys that were like, we need to put out a new, sports game like every year we need to update the rosters we need to do this every year and people at ea were like no one's gonna buy it and they were like um yeah they will you know and like michael brook and don traeger were two guys that were like uh we need to get on the genesis because the pc 
we're not going to be able to make enough money on the PC. And Trip Hawkins saw like games as like a as more of an educational device. He didn't see them as much as like the entertainment based thing that they are now. And those guys really fought super hard to get on the Genesis and to get those yearly releases. And by the time all of that stuff really came through, Trip Hawkins was over a 3DO, but by then EA was a complete mega power. So again, speaking to those guys. Awesome. What was the right situation to games back then? Like when they were bringing them like across platform, what do you mean, like in terms of like uh, like player names and stuff like that? No, just in terms of who had the rights to, you know, have the game. You know what I mean? Like, was it as kind of organized as it is now where publishers they have, like Sony will get it exclusive for a year and then something will come out for... I mean, they all had, they all had licensing agreements and stuff like that. Those were all in place. But in terms of like things like player names and things like that. Like Madden didn't have an NFL license for years and they didn't have an NHL players association license for the first year and things like that, because they were like, you know what? We'll just rate the players the way that they're, they are in real life. And we'll use the numbers and people will know who they are. So like, we don't even need the player names, you know, like things like that would never happen. Now you'd get somebody, somebody would get sued, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, like on NBA Jam, where they have just random roster guard instead of Michael Jordan. Like, you know what I mean? Like, these things wouldn't be allowed to take place now. Now, yeah. like, they yeah. want like they want to make sure that they have the names. I mean, that's a part of the, you know, the marketing and selling features. Yep. It was just, it was a much, and you know what it was? It was all, it was all uncharted waters. Like, the ocean was wide open and for the taking. And, like, EA was one of those companies that was just like, all right, this is what we're going to do. And if somebody doesn't like it, then they'll complain. I mean, EA, I'm not sure if you know this, but, like, EA backwards um, reverse engineered the NES and the Sega Genesis. That's the reason why, like, the EA carts look different. They, they found a way to make their own carts for cheaper, and they didn't have to go through Sega. And they backwards engineered the NES so they could make their own games for the for the, uh, for the the Nintendo. Like, we're talking, like, tons and tons of innovation. EA was the company that was just like, um, just because no one says we can't do it doesn't mean we can't do it. You know, they were a bunch of ballsy, like cutthroat smart people man i mean they get a lot of flack thrown their way today but i mean the original those guys those founders of ea man holy crap super talented trailblazers that absolutely changed the industry forever does ea still have a presence uh of the, does it still have the presence of those original minds no no i mean some of them are still like some of them are in like the mobile um like the mobile divisions and things like that and they, they design games like I, i'm sure that there are probably some people that are still there. But I mean, you ask any game developer and they'll tell you like, it's a pretty ageist um, industry. Cause like once you've been there for a long time and you've got a bunch of like games under your belt that you've made, that you've sold millions of copies on, you can use that. You can make more money. And the demand is so great. And there's so many talented developers out there now that like are, that are learning the technology that a company like EA will go, you know, we'll just hire some 25 year old that'll do the work. And we'll, we'll keep like one of the older guys that knows how we want it. And that'll be like the guy that like directs everyone down the line. So we'll have a bunch of super talented 20, 25 year olds that don't like need to eat and sleep and have a family. 
and those guys will work on the games and the one guy that knows the way we want it to be, he'll be the one that directs them. But all the other guys that like broke their back on the games yet, we don't need them anymore. So those guys end up founding other companies or they go indie or they go into like different fields. I mean, I've spoken to so many game developers in their forties and fifties that just feel like it's an old man's sport. Now, like if you want to design, like if you want to be a producer or this and that too, it's the same thing. Like they want somebody that's like young, fresh, new ideas. So it's, uh, it's highly doubtful that those guys that I spoke to, like on those games, that that they're still at EA or still like working in the same uh, way that they were back then. Because I mean, it is a it is a nonstop like hardcore crunch and grind all the time. When you were a kid, I mean, what were some of the games that specifically you know kind of ignited that passion, even beyond the the sports games? Um, beyond the sports games, let's see. I'm sitting right next to my NES games, and that was like the uh, the system that I I was kind of like that was my first system really. So I would say, uh, away from sports games, Ducktales, Punch Out. I mean, Punch Out is a sports game, but it's technically not a sports game. Uh, Legend of Zelda, Contra, Narc, Paperboy, Castlevania, Metroid, Dragon Spirit. Like I mean. Uh, Star Tropics was awesome. Uh, Star Tropics Bad was Duke, fantastic. Yeah, Double Dragon. So, like, I mean, I played a lot of I played a lot of different stuff on the Super Nintendo. I would say though, like, I was kind of like uh, I played whatever my parents bought me when I was a kid. Like on the Super Nintendo, on the Genesis, on the on the, the Nintendo, the Super Nintendo, the Genesis. It wasn't until I turned about thirteen or fourteen and started working that um, I started buying games that I wanted. So I remember being like 13, 14, I got a job as a, as a telemarketer and, uh, I just went out and I, I had the money and I, I got a PlayStation and I bought a Game Boy Color. And all of a sudden I was just, I was playing like Super Mario Land 2, six golden coins. And then I was playing like Tekken and I was playing Beyond the Beyond. And I was just playing all of these different games that I probably wouldn't have been exposed to by like, you know, playing games with my parents. And then it got to the point where like, my parents were like, what are you playing? And I would show them like, you know, Doom on, on the PS1 and my dad would be like, oh, that looks really cool. But yeah, that's not like Mario Brothers. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And then my dad was like, yeah, no, I'm good. And he didn't want to play anymore. So uh, that's when it ended up becoming something more that I was interested in. And my brother didn't, I have a twin brother and he, uh, he kind of like dropped out of like the whole gaming thing after a while. So it kind of worked out good in a way. So by the time I started working and could pay for my own games, then it was just like the thing that I was into in the house and not everybody else. Were you exclusively a console kid or did you hit up the arcades? Oh, I hit up arcades a lot. Um, I didn't have a PC. Like I was, I was a poor kid. I mean, I, I wasn't even poor. I was po like I couldn't afford the <laughs> O and the R, you know? And um, I used to love to play pinball, big pinball guy. And I love the arcades. I love like Turtles in Time and like I said, Bad Dudes and Double Dragon and the X-Men arcade game and the Simpsons arcade game and Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat and all that stuff. I mean, yeah, I love that stuff. I had a laundromat around the corner from my house that had a, a Neo Geo machine and that just changed my life. Like all those games were great and they felt so foreign and so different from the other stuff that was in the arcade at the time. I just, I just loved at, at a young age, I loved games and I saw them as an art form and I almost saw them as like music. Like I would play a game and go, you know what? This kind of reminds me of 
this or this kind of reminds me of that and then what i would do is and i was just doing it before the podcast i was looking through an instruction manual for uh, an intellivision game and i used to love to sit back and like read the instruction manuals for games and my dad would come into my room and go like what are you doing and i'm like reading the instruction manual he goes why don't you just shut up and, and play it and I'm like, well, I want to know who made it. I want to know, like, what the story of the game is and stuff. And he was just like, you're weird. You know, and I'm like, yeah, I know. But um, that stuff has come in handy, like, moving on. Because, I mean, I remember having a conversation with a game developer a couple of years ago that I now work with. I'm writing the story for his game. And he wanted me to come on his podcast. And uh, his name is Peepaw Cat. And he's a... Uh, he was the senior animator on Bioshock Infinite, and he did all the. I'm pretty sure he still does the keyframe animations for uh, Overwatch. And he messaged me, and he was like, um, "Is this Patrick Hickey, the author of the minds behind the games?" And my response instantly was, "Is this P. Paul Kett who worked on Bioshock Infinite and Gladius?" And he goes, "How the fuck do you know who I am?" And I'm like, "How do you know who I am?" And that started a friendship, and we've been friends ever since. And now I'm writing the story for for his next game. So I mean, I would tell like all these kids out there that are listening, or just people that want to get involved in the industry, like all of that useless knowledge that you, or all that knowledge that you think is useless, there definitely is a place for it. You just have to find the right place to use it. And for me, I love to read, and uh, being able to take all of that information from all of those uh, instruction manuals has definitely played a role in like the success that I would have later in my in my career. Have you found that with a lot of these guys, you've established relationships with them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing is a lot of them, um, understand what I'm doing. I I've only gotten like, I've probably pitched over the five books. I've probably pitched around 300 developers. I've probably gotten like a little bit more than half to say yes, but I've probably only gotten like three straight no's like people that were like, no, I'm not interested. And those always puzzled me because I was kind of like, why would you not want the opportunity to tell your story? You know, Absolutely. Um, which it, it's just like kind of shocking to me. Well, because these games can because I feel like some of those classic games, I mean, some of them live on. But the people who created them are largely anonymous, uh, anonymous, as anonymous, you were, yeah, as you were absolutely. saying. And so but at the same time. When you're looking at games, especially like Mortal Kombat, you're looking at NHL 94, mm -hmm. you're looking yeah. at super influential games that, you know, at the time were just like, yeah, playing them. We thought it was, but they really influenced the way that the industry moved, Absolutely. you know, in the years uh, coming. See, and I like, I like to interview people too, that people may necessarily go, oh, like perfect example for the Genesis book that I'm working on right now. I interviewed one of the programmers for uh, Mortal Kombat 3 on the Sega Genesis. It's not Ed Boon and it's not John Tobias and stuff like that. But I mean, this guy programmed, co-programmed the version of Mortal Kombat that most people played. Because I mean, most people played it in the arcade, but more people played it at home. Like if you think of your total playtime in Mortal Kombat 3, you're talking the Sega Genesis or the Super Nintendo. Yeah. It wasn't the arcade, you know? So he designed the version that you played the most. So to me, that guy has an interesting story. And oh my God, like the stories this guy gave me on how they were able to like make that game as arcade perfect, like all of the the time and energy that went into it. Like I feel like that's a story that needs to be told, you know? And it was just like in the first book, when I interviewed John Tobias, I wanted to talk to him about like what inspired Mortal Kombat. So he talked about Karate Champ. And then he was just talking about how like fatalities came about because they felt like they had something flat. They had a good fighting game, but it needed something extra. And that's how 
fatalities came to be. So it's like, those are the stories that I like to tell because my whole thing is like, I remember when I was in graduate school, I had a journalism professor, Tim Harper. I wasn't that big a fan of him as a person. I still, I'm still not that big a fan of Tim, but um, I mean, Tim is the most, one of the most honest and down to earth people that you could ever meet. And he doesn't give a shit if you don't like him or not. So he's probably laughing right now. But um, he tells great stories in the fact that like, he's like every good journalistic piece has a bar stool moment where you start talking about the story and people want to pull up a chair and continue to listen to you. So for me, it, it would be like so easy. Just be like, Oh, Mortal Kombat's bloody. And it, it, the ESRB. Blah, 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 blah. And it's like, these stories have been, those stories people know they're on Wikipedia and stuff. I wanted to dig deeper. So it's like, I, I heard Tim's voice in the back of my head when I was writing these chapters and it was just kind of like give these people more make these sources really talk and, and and give readers something that's more tangible something that they could share something that gives like a depth to the video game industry and gives a depth to their answers because again the college that I work at, it's, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, but you write about video games, so it's not that serious. And I'm just like, anyone that would say that has, like, absolutely no idea, but so many people say it, you know? So Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I, I think that, you know, video games are one of these art forms where over the years it's gotten more legitimate and you know you now you're starting to see especially when you see games like the final fantasy 7 remake death stranding red sure. dead redemption 2 where they are just like it's an art form and they are so well put together Absolutely. and so much has gone into it and so much writing has gone into it that mm -hmm. i don't see the point in saying that it's it's any less legitimate than say filmmaking music and you know what i mean like mm -hmm. for you when do you think that started to change i think it's always been something that's been super important to me i think um like i said i was one of those people that remembered you know developers names and like i remembered years that games came out and things like that and to me i mean that that kind of piggybacks off of when i was a kid i used to like memorize the backs of baseball cards so like and hockey cards and and football cards and stuff and people would be like oh well how many you know rushing yards did bo jackson have in 1990 and i go 914 you know and they would go holy shit like what's wrong with you um so i just i love information and i love statistics and things like that but it's just like if somebody goes to you like uh how many goals did Wendell Clark have in 1991? You'll go, oh, like 17 or whatever. And somebody will go, he only scored 17 goals. And you'll go, let me tell you why he only scored 17 goals. And you'll explain that, like, one of his line mates got injured. He was getting shuffled around. He hurt his hand in a fight with Bob Probear, uh, Probear or something, something like that. Like, you'll know, like, the reason for the answer. And to me, that's where that's a book. That's like a great idea. That's a story. So for me, like games get written off way too fast. Like the average gamer will go, oh, that game only got a six. I don't want to play it. Or, oh, that game just came out and it's already been reduced to like 1999 at GameStop. That game, shit, I don't want to play it. And to me, it's like, no, there's a story behind that game. And sometimes if you can connect with the story, it'll help you appreciate the game more. And if you can appreciate the game more, then that means that it's just not a game then it's something else completely. So like, even as a kid, I would play a game and I would just try and look for Easter eggs and just like, I try and like break the game. I mean, even when I play to this day, when I play games like Skyrim or like Fallout 3 or whatever, I'll go to like the edge of the map, you know, and see like what happens. 
You know, like all of those games, like Breath of the Wild, I'll try and go as far as I possibly can. You know, in Pokemon, I'll go all the way to the corner of the map and just see what happens. It's like, to me, it's always been something more than a game. You know, it's the creation, it's the creation of a world. You know, think of it this way. It's like, we, we write off video games as being childish and stuff like that. But like Animal Crossing and Doom came out on March 20th, like movie theaters were closed. You know, movies are supposed to be like this high art, higher art form than video games, but like they were closed and people were actually standing online risking like infection for Animal Crossing and Doom. I also think that the video game industry is better at adapting to situations like this. I feel like video games have adapted well, especially to the mobile environment, because now such a large percentage of the industry is mobile. Absolutely. It's like my, my wife doesn't want to admit it, but like my wife plays like those Disney Blitz games and, and like those those slot machine games and stuff like that. And she she gets her daily login reward and she plays all those stupid games and she she doesn't want to admit it, but she's a gamer. She's absolutely a gamer. And the industry, you're absolutely right, continues to adapt and continues to find new ways to connect to people, you know, so. You're absolutely right. And also the games on, you know, in a mobile environment, like if they're, they're getting progressively better, especially if you look at Pokemon Go. Yeah, like absolutely. I'm, I'm obsessive about the game since I'd never predicted 15, 10 years ago that I would be, you know, almost willing to give out hand jobs for the, prop, <laughs> the proper candies to upgrade my Togekiss. Um, yeah. So oh it's really God. interesting at how the, you know, the industry, you know, has continued to grow and adapt, you know, to technological changes. What are you playing now? So, like, what do you, what gets your rocks off now from a gaming point of view? So, I, um, right before this whole COVID-19 thing happened, um, I wanted to have a way to play as many games as possible at any given time in as easy a way as possible. And, um, I mean, I run emulators on my Mac and stuff like that, but that's, you know, you got to plug in a controller and this and that and da 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 And I, I came across this really sweet device called the RG350. And um, the guy that designed the prototype that would later become the original FIFA soccer, Jules Burt, he uh, did a video on YouTube and he was just showing it off, like what it did. And it's basically an emulation device. It's a handheld. It's probably like a little bit bigger than an iPhone 11. And it runs everything from, like, the Atari 2600 up until the PS1, including, like, the arcade and Neo Geo. So I saw this thing, and I, I was, like, I fell in love with it. So I bought, I bought it, and I got it probably, like, the second week of February. And then, like, a week later, I got a 128-gig micro SD card. And I have every single game for the NES, Super Nintendo, Atari Lynx, Intellivision, ColecoVision, 2600, like, Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Genesis, 32X, Sega CD, and I've got about 100 MAME games, about 150 Neo Geo games, and about 50 PlayStation 1 games on there, and it runs beautifully. So it's like, it's become like my research device. So like, I'm working on the Genesis book now, and today I've played like an hour of uh, Gargoyles on the uh, That's Genesis. such a good game. Absolutely. And then I played about 45 minutes of X-Mutants on there. So like, that's kind of like what I, I play like on a daily basis. Um, But... I mean, I didn't want to get into the new Animal Crossing because I knew it was going to be a huge time suck. But um, my wife ended up getting it for me for our anniversary, which was last week. And I've, I've played it about 30 hours the past week. 
So about two and a half hours a day once like everybody falls asleep. And oh my God, it's, it's just as good as it was. Like the last Animal Crossing that I really got into was the original, the one on GameCube. That's the, I, I haven't played the new one yet. That's the one I played. I loved the GameCube one. You know, I just love the interactions with everybody, and uh, and and like I didn't I didn't know how I was gonna feel about it playing it online with people, and uh, Nintendo still has a lot of growing up to do in terms of like their online experience. But we'll save that conversation for another day. But um, last night, my best friend who lives downstairs from me, he he messaged me and he was like, "You want to come to my island?" And I'm like, "Sure." And he like gave me like a wrestling a wrestling figure for my house. And, like, I gave him, like, this, like, Japanese, like, ponytail haircut for, like, his avatar and stuff. And we were just goofing around for, like, two hours. And I'm just like, yeah, this game is pretty awesome. So I'm waiting on the uh, the new DLC for Pokemon Sword and Shield because I beat the crap out of that game. And I have about 120 Pokemon that are level 100. Um, so I need something new to do in Pokemon. So once those new DLC come, then I'll download those. Um, but for the time being, yeah, the RG... I'm just playing a bunch of retro stuff, prepping for the Genesis book, and uh, Animal Crossing right now. That's basically what I've been playing. I just recently replayed uh, the GameCube Animal Crossing because I put an emulator on my computer, uh, yeah. a GameCube emulator. And uh, it's funny because they put Animal Crossing and Doom Eternal kind of out at the same time. And yeah. I feel that Doom Eternal is a good game, but Animal Crossing, especially for this given situation in time and society is like kind of a little bit more appropriate in terms of I, yeah i was just telling somebody yesterday i was like man i would not be surprised when this is all over that we find out that nintendo created the coronavirus <laughs> be because animal crossing is the perfect game to come out during the coronavirus like when we start to find out like the total sales on animal crossing i would not be surprised if it outsells pokemon like it, because it's, it's ridiculous. It's it, it's done it's, it's done so well. It's but it's it's perfect for this because it's like, man, th it's one of the reasons why I prefer the switch because like when I go to work, like I have a car, but I take the bus to work, so this way the car is home. So if my wife and my daughter need to need to go anywhere or anything, they have the car. So I take mass transit, and it takes like an hour and a half to get to work and stuff. So that's like my gaming time in the beginning of the day. So it's hard when you have kids to play PS4 and play, you know games that take up the tv because you know you got a little kid and they like kind of they take over the living room and you know i don't want to play like nhl 20 for three hours and have my kid watch me that's not fair you know so the switch is just a great alternative if i come home and if if corona wasn't going on and i would come home and i would play the switch for like an hour i would feel like a piece of garbage because i'm supposed to be spending time with my wife and my kid you know but like with all of this stuff going on and everyone's sleeping like when my pet when my parents you hear me when my wife and my daughter go to sleep I can play and I can still get in my two and a half hours. I don't feel so bad. And plus, since I'm with my daughter and my wife so much now, like in the middle of the day when everyone's just chilling out, I could pull out the switch and everyone can still watch TV. Like it's the perfect game for right now. It's just super calm and relaxing. Like if you rage quit Animal Crossing, there's like something emotionally wrong with you. <laughs> like it's just a perfect game to play considering everything that's going on right now. So do you find it hard to maintain like a balance between making sure you're getting your gaming in while like hanging out with your family and, uh, you know, doing the, doing the yeah. dad thing? Oh yeah, absolutely. But the thing is too, like I've, I found ways 
to kind of co-mingle. So like my daughter loves being in my man cave because I have like a huge collection of like Skylanders, Disney Amiibo, uh, Disney Infinity and Amiibo. So she loves to play with them. So she loves to come in the man cave and play with them. But what I'll do is like when she's playing with those, I'll like, I'll turn on the little CRT TV that I have in here and I'll put on like Mario 64 and she'll see me and she'll sit on my lap and she'll be like, what's that? And then we'll start talking and then she'll start playing. And then um, every day on Instagram, I do like a game of the day. And when I first started doing it, I was just going to do it by myself. And then she just started popping up into my videos to the point where she's like in every one now. So I, I was lucky that I was able to convert my daughter into a gamer. And it's funny because in Animal Crossing, my avatar right now is wearing like a surgical mask. Um, cause I just thought that that would be cool. Like to put the surgical mask on him. So he would be protecting himself against COVID on his deserted Island. Um, so when I go outside, like, cause I've been going out once a week to get groceries and to mail books and things like that. <laughs> my daughter will go to me, you going to play animal crossing. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm going outside to play animal crossing. So she's, she's completely a gamer now. So to, to answer your question, yeah, it's super hard. And obviously your family comes first. And luckily, like I've put myself in a situation where sometimes I could say, listen, I need to play this because I'm going to write a chapter of a book on this or, oh, these people sent me a copy of this game. I need to review it for the site because the site makes money and we need we need the money, you know, so it's just like, luckily, I found a way to like make it into something that my wife knows that I'm not just like completely, you know, wasting time and, and just jerking around. It's very rare now that I'll just like play a game for like the sheer like enjoyment. It's always like, am I going to write an article about this? Like, how is this going to affect like my next book? Or, you know, is this a, an assignment for the site or is this an article for a magazine? So yeah, my relationship with gaming has changed tremendously since I had a kid, but it's still a great relationship. It's just like everything else that's going on now. It's just, it's adapted. I think that's a byproduct of when you're doing something that you love and you're able to monetize it. Because mm -hmm. kind of when when starting the production company, I you know the mine refinery, you know people you know a lot of people in my personal life because I left cooking and I was making mm -hmm. good money at that and people were like well why are you doing that you know why are you taking the risk and there is a joy in doing this and doing sure. things that you want to do and talking to people who are also doing things that they want to do. And I mean, it's the, it's definitely the best argument for, you know, if you have an opportunity to try to take one of, you know, your passions and let that be your life, then give it like, at least give it a shot. Absolutely. I mean, um, I remember when I started working at NBC, the first year that I was at NBC, I was, uh, when I got hired, I was the overnight editor on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I was working from basically like four o'clock in the afternoon to like two o'clock in the morning and uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So like all the big games, all the award shows, because I was like a sports and entertainment guy. So they knew that. So I was like the perfect guy. They gave me a fantasy football column. I was covering, I was getting to watch all the dress rehearsals for Saturday Night Live and writing up recaps for Saturday Night Live. So it was great. But the thing was, I really wanted to write video game stuff. And, um, I remember having a conversation and I pitched an article on The Last of Us because The Last of Us was in development at this time to my editor. And he was like, yeah, go ahead. Like, let's see what happens. And it ended up getting great traffic. And then after that, I just I was like writing most of my stuff was on video games. And uh, that's when I find I finally found like I felt like I found that 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 point where I was like, yeah, this is what I'm. I meant to do like I, it's what I wanted to do before. And I had spent probably like anywhere from like in between in between five and 10 years, like on and off 
writing about sports and minor league hockey and professional hockey and baseball and stuff. And it was great. And I loved it. I would never trade those memories in at all. Like going on the road with a minor league hockey team for a season, like amazing shit. But I'm telling you, being able to do like what I'm doing now, so different, you know, so important, like to me and, and to people like going to like book signings and speaking to people and, and doing podcasts and, and talking to people about, about my work. I mean, so, so different and yeah it's a hard road and it's like i i mean sometimes there's like there's times when like i won't sell a book for like a week and i'll start to get pissed off and i'm like what do i got to do i got to go on another podcast i got to do something different and then i mean this the whole corona thing i mean i've been selling basically like a couple of books a day since like february like the end of february because everyone's been like in the house and i've gotten a lot of new readers and i've met a lot of new people and i've been rocking like social media a lot more than i was before because i have time so this is like uh, this has been a time in my life where I've, I've realized that this was what I wanted to do before, but I think like this may be like what I was meant to do now, if that makes sense. So one last thing before we go, do you have anything to plug? Oh, I have everything to plug. plug um, <laughs> yeah. So the first book, um, the minds behind the games, came out in April of 2018, and that is currently available wherever fine books are sold online, like Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Target, Walmart, Books a Million, Indigo. The second book, The Minds Behind the Adventure Games, that came out in December of 2019, and that's available in all of the same places that I just said. The next book, The Minds Behind the Sports Games, should be coming out in like June or July. Uh, the Minds Behind the Shooter Games, the shooter book is probably going to come out like in December or January, so like December of 2020 or January of 2021. And uh, those, again, all those books will be available digitally and and uh, physically at all fine bookstores. But the thing is, if you go to um, if you go to patrickhickeyjr.com forward slash books, you can order the book directly from me. And um, the books that that are ordered directly from me. I ship out personally. Um, I order them from my publisher and then I get them and I sign them and I send them out to my readers. And the thing is like, let's just say like you're from Toronto. Perfect example. Um, if you ordered the book from me, I would message you and be like, are you a Blue Jays fan? Are you a Maple Leaf fan? Like what's going on? And you'd probably be like, what the fuck? Did the author just email me? Yes, the author did. He emailed you. And uh, I'll start a little back and forth with you. And what I'll do is I'll put some cool stuff in your book. So like I had uh, somebody from Toronto actually like, I would say like in July bought the book and I put in a 1988 Cecil Fielder Toronto uh, Blue Jays baseball card in there. And they were like shocked. They were like, holy crap, you put a Cecil Fielder card in my book? And I'm like, keep looking. So then they kept looking and they saw that I put, uh, uh, who was that goalie for the uh, the Maple Leafs in 91? Podvan, Grant Fuhrer in 91, then it became Felix Podvan. In 1991. 90, it should have been Grant Fuhrer. Yeah. Or was it Rick Walmsley? No, no, no. Yeah, it was Rick Walmsley. Rick Walmsley, oh my yeah. God. Yeah, it was Rick Walmsley. It was a Rick Walmsley card in their, uh, in their book. And they were like, oh, my God, that's crazy. Blah, blah, blah. So it's like I like to do stuff like that to just make sure that there's a connection. There's a group page for the minds behind the games. And the thing that's cool about that is if you're a reader, you have no idea who's in this group. So like I have a lot of game developers in there. So there's been a couple of times where I've been like, oh, best Spider-Man game. And somebody was like, oh, that game that came out, that Spider-Man game that came out on this system sucked ass. And then the producer would be like, excuse me? <laughs> like, why did it suck ass? Like, explain yourself, you know? So it's just like good, really cool, deep conversation. The last plug uh, would be for the game, uh, for Kroom. You can go to kroomgame.com uh, to find out more about Kroom. And it's just like I said, it's just like, 
all of these great games from the late 80s and early 90s had a baby, but it essentially plays like Link and Link, Contra, and like Strider all mixed up into one. It's super fun. It's super cool. It's got a great score. It's animated beautifully. Like I, I cannot wait for people to uh, to check it out. So, so yeah, croomgame.com. Well, thank you very much for your time, Patrick. Yeah, no uh, problem. And everyone, try to stay safe and stay healthy. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Just a reminder, if you like this podcast and want to keep hearing it, subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you're not already subscribing to our YouTube channel or following us on social media, get on it. You will not regret it.